Advanced practice across the world. Let's find out what happened yesterday, what's happening today, and what's going to happen tomorrow. All right, so welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. I'm Brian, and in a rare dual hosting moment, Jonathan is with me. Yeah, I'm here. This is uh, this is a bit of a novelty for us. I think the last time we were together was in the very first podcast we did, Brian, wasn't it? That was back in October of last year, if I remember rightly. I believe so, yeah. We talked, again, something sort of similar to today. We talked about roles uh, for advanced practice providers, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sort of the state of uh, advanced practice providers, whether they're nurse practitioners or physician assistants or advanced care practitioners. Is that the UK term, Jonathan? Critical care practitioners. Critical care practitioners. Yeah. Uh, or whatever, we, whatever we're called, how we're used and how we operate in the ICU and the future of our profession, I guess. With us is a special guest, Dr. Ruth Kleinpel. Dr. Kleinpel, in addition to being a critical care nurse practitioner, is the immediate past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine the world's largest uh, organization for critical care professionals, uh, and currently is the assistant dean of clinical scholarship at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing in Nashville, Tennessee. She's done extensive work uh, promoting the role of the advanced practice provider in critical care through research, scholarship, um, and advocacy through SCCM and other groups. Um, Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I most appreciate the opportunity. So we've talked about this a little before, and like Jonathan and I were sort of alluding to our previous conversation, what is an APP, advanced practice provider? That's the term I'll use because uh, it's the term that I'm familiar with here that's sort of a broader, uh, more encompassing term than just nurse practitioner or, or PA or whatever. Uh, but who, who are APPs? I think one of the things that's unique about our profession is that there's so many different ways to get to more or less the same type of position. Uh, And I don't really know a good way to define us. Uh, One thing I've heard is non-physician provider, but I don't like defining ourselves based on what we're not, (laughs) you know? Right. No, definitely. Uh, And there still is a bit of mix in terms of titles. Uh, You know, I think in the United States, we've had the nurse practitioner role over 60 years and the original one was you know primary care focused so the acute care specialty developed for nurse practitioners uh you know over 20 years ago and really was a result of having increased complexity of patients in the icu and then changes in the united states with the number of hours that physicians in training could be in the hospital setting. And then we see overall uh, in the United States, a shortage of intensivists. So, you know, combined together, uh, physician assistants certainly have been a a partner in care uh, and they obviously work uh, in collaboration with the team as do nurse practitioners. We're seeing that the term advanced practice provider is being used collectively to refer to nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, You know, as you indicated, uh, Brian, you know, terms such as mid-level provider or non-physician practitioner, you know, used to be used, but I think there's more recognition of the specific roles themselves. So uh, Jonathan and I talked about this before. Um, I said there are times that I think the way they've done it in the UK is nice in that 
no matter what background you come from, you all end up with the same training and you all end up with the same title and you all end up with the same scope of practice. And that's something that we've dealt with in the United States has been very different. Uh, and I would say difficult at times too, because you may find yourself practicing with someone who comes from a different background, who had a completely different type of education and level of education. Uh, and in fact has different rules about how they can practice. Yes, that is definitely true. Uh, for the most part, we see that nurse practitioner programs are master's level education. Uh, some have actually advanced to doctor of nursing practice level, so it's a clinical doctorate. Uh, physician assistants, for the most part, you know, are also a master's uh, level, uh, originally bachelor's prepared, but majority now have moved into the master's um, and, you know, when we look at their different focus, obviously nurse practitioners were nurses, so they started out as nurses, and we found from some of our, our review work that, you know, a lot of critical care nurses actually advance their education so they could become nurse practitioners, critical care nurse practitioners. I think, you know, I have very, uh, very many colleagues who are physician assistants, and their training is a bit different. They're trained under the medical model. Um, in the United States, they work. They have their own license, but they still work, you know, in collaboration with physicians. Um, and we have them on our teams. You know, sometimes the roles you you could see are are identical, but we also see differences. Um, you know, some of our nurse practitioners are very much involved in some specific areas of focus. You know, discharge planning, uh, collaborative care with families. Uh, you know, looking at educational interventions involved with research and quality improvement. So both roles, although they're focused specifically on patient care management, you know, we do see some differences in how those roles are enacted in some settings. What backgrounds do your physician um, associate stroke assistants tend to come from? Are they are they direct entry from a university background? Do they tend to have any kind of medical background? Where Where do they come from? Yeah, I would say some do uh, have a, a clinical background. Others don't. You know, they go to school specifically for that education and training, um, you know, in, in terms of really working uh, traditionally in operating room settings, assisting physicians with procedures and such. Um, and I know in, in some settings, they, they really have expanded now to critical care to work on critical care teams. Um, Brian, what do you see in your settings in terms of physician assistance? Yeah, so the group I'm with currently, we don't have any physician assistants, just nurse practitioners, but there are PAs on other teams, um, and I have a number of friends that are PAs, and I would I would say a lot of what you said is correct. Most of the folks that I know had some sort of background before. They were paramedics or they were respiratory therapists, uh, but a lot of them did come straight in. You know, They came in into college as an undergraduate, got a degree in uh, a science usually, and then on to PA school. I think traditionally, at least in my experience, we've seen, like you said, more of them working like in the operating room environment and things like that. Um, but I actually do know quite a few who now work on inpatient teams as well. One of the things that I've wondered about, and, and Ruth, maybe you can speak to this uh, if you've seen it in, in practice, is because in the United States, physician assistants are governed by the Board of Medicine, typically, whereas nurse practitioners by the Board of Nursing. And there's usually different rules as to what each can and can't do. 
if you have a mixed practice where you have some nurse practitioners and some physician assistants, how does that work? How do the physicians that work in that group or the group as a whole manage the differences of what certain people can and can't do? Does that make sense? No, right. And, and I think that's actually one of the, I think, unique aspects in, in that when you have nurse practitioners and physician assistants working on the same team, you know, they can focus on what they're, they're specialized in and what they prefer. So some physician assistants, you know, may want to assist in surgery and, and do procedural work, whereas the nurse practitioners in conjunction with the team you know, may like, just like the physician assistant help with direct patient care management, but because of their nursing background, they may also gravitate to, um, you know, assist in some quality improvement projects or, you know, help restructure some of the protocols and, and practice parameters. Um, certainly they, they play a big role in helping to uh, inform the bedside nurses of the plan of care and, there's, you know, actually been studies that have showed that, you know, um, staff nurse turnover has decreased because of having nurse practitioners and others on the team, you know, really having more collaborative care. Um, so I think that's one of the benefits is there's just not one type of role that you can really adapt it to what the setting needs for uh, providing care to patients. I think one of the problems and the, one of the questions that I get asked quite regularly, Ruth, um, certainly over here with it being in a little bit more in its infancy than over in the uh, in the States, is that one of the things is that we are draining the um, nursing population of um, some of the um, experts. I, I, my argument there is there is an element of that, but for me... Um, and I don't know how you feel, but I'm hope hopefully the same. First and foremost, I'm a nurse, always will be, uh, always going to be. Um, and what I then bring to this um, advanced role is a lot of my nursing experience as well. And whilst um, I'm moving from one nursing role into an advanced role, I'm not necessarily moving out of nursing entirely. And in fact, one of the things that I do within my role at the moment is try to encourage those nurses who are still in a nursing role to think. Um, more out uh, to, to think more fully of the patient holistically on a research basis as well and try and keep them updated it's one of the reasons I do what I do is that I I developed the website I got the podcast and I'm doing the videos because I, I want those nurses to be more empowered to affect the way that their patients are being treated and to be less of and this is an old phrase but to be less of a, a doctor's handmaiden so I don't necessarily think we're draining the pool of nurses but I'm hoping that we're adding to that as a resource well and certainly it's a career trajectory for nurses so you know there are obviously excellent critical care bedside nurses who you know stay in in those roles uh, but there's others who you know really benefit from getting advanced education and working as a nurse practitioner and as you indicate you know you still retain um, your nursing um, profile and you're just expanding it in other ways yeah, yeah. i mean it, it's how it's how you depend um, define 
the role of a nurse, isn't it? Because, I mean, we all know, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Brian, but we all know, don't we, that nursing has come on, has changed dramatically, even in the 30 years that I've been nursing. Um, certainly over here in the UK, when I was a nurse, um, it wasn't unusual for the nurses not be able to draw bloods or to, um, to cannulate people. That was always considered a medical job. I mean, now, you know, the, the, the standard nurse over here is expected to do that kind of thing. So we're all moving up a level in many ways, aren't we, in the roles that we take. Um, and I think advanced practice is just um, another way of defining that level of activity. I don't know what you think about that, Brian. Yeah, I was going to say something actually kind of along the same lines. We we hear that a lot too, right? And I work in a couple of different ICUs with some really great nurses. But when I look around, I see the ICU looks very different than when I was a nurse. When I was a nurse, um, you know, if you had four or five years experience as a nurse, you were a newbie. Um, you know, there were plenty of nurses who were, had been doing it for 20 years. And now I look around and nurses that I worked with who were not even, who were nursing students two or three years ago are now senior people hmm. uh, in some of these units. But I think like what you said, nursing is changing. And I think this may just be an evolution of the profession, right? Like you said, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you know, physicians put IVs in, physicians drew blood, physicians did all of these things that now we take for granted that nurses do. Uh, and I think maybe this is just a change that we're going to have maybe out, maybe we don't have as many experienced nurses around, but we have some and we have more of those people moving into an advanced practice role. Uh, and then it's just a change in the profession. Yeah. I mean, I don't see us as, uh, uh, I don't see us as, um, another profession I see is as a bridge between professions, if you like. I mean, we're often accused of right. falling in between the cracks, you know, that we're neither one nor the other. Well, my argument is that we're actually a little bit of both. And as a consequence, we're a stronger profession for it because I have my experience as a nurse. I now have my experience as an advanced practitioner. And that experience can be used to help both the nursing and the medical profession. So um, it, it's not an argument that I worry about, but it's one that I often hear and uh, I, I feel ready to uh, uh, challenge those that, that will say that kind of thing to me. I would imagine, Ruth, um, this is something that you have seen develop um, over. I mean, when, when do you think you could say that advanced practice started to gain momentum in the United States? Was that something that started during your career or was it even before then? Well, the first, no, it was during my career, the first national uh, acute care nurse practitioner certification, the national exam was offered in 1995. So, you know, that's really when the national groups identified that specialty training and programs began then to develop and expand um, from the primary care focus to acute care. And um, I think we've, we've seen really an expansion of that just because as they, as nurse practitioners, assume roles in the ICU as well as with specialty practice groups that, you know, the benefit of their role is really seen. And, you know, I know in, in some of the settings I've been affiliated in, we started out with one or two uh, nurse practitioners. And now in some settings, there's 24-7 coverage in all the ICUs. So, you know, I think looking at continuity of care and once physicians and administrators realize the value, you know, we see more and more positions being available, which is definitely beneficial. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've certainly witnessed um, is that you talk about physicians seeing the value. Um, I have very much experienced physicians seeing the value once they work with us. Uh, that I've we've turned the heads of those that perhaps weren't sure or weren't keen whenever i've worked with them i've proved my worth and usually i've managed to convert them um to not just wanting us there but actually missing us when we're not there yeah i uh i said there was someone posted on twitter the other day a physician assistant that i follow uh she said i i love when I, something along the lines of, i love when i talk to medical students who want to hate on nurse practitioners and pas and I just think, you know, you wait in 10 years, you're going to realize how much better we make your life. And I, I've always said, that's one of the reasons I like working at a teaching hospital, because I, my hope is that all the residents I work with, when they leave, they're going to go to, you know, another academic center or private practice. And they're going to say, oh, you have advanced practice providers here, man, they're great. Or even better, what do you mean you don't have advanced practice providers? How do you function? Uh, we had great ones where I trained and we need to get some here. Yeah. And, and actually, when you look in the literature, um, there have been several studies within the last five years that specifically have focused on the impact that advanced practice providers uh, uh, make on physician and training experiences. So residents and fellows and in, in those several studies, the across the board, you know, the residents and uh, fellows indicated that they, the advanced practitioners, advance their education and training. I think when the role first developed in academic medical centers, there was some concern that the nurse practitioners and physician assistants would, you know, take over all the procedures, and the residents and fellows wouldn't get experience on doing invasive skill work. And, you know, certainly that has not happened. Um, and in fact, you know, the presence of advanced practitioners has, has really ensured, um, I, I think, a better educational experience for uh, the residents and fellows in academic medical centers. I think so, too. We've even discussed um, there's things in our ICUs that our residents are exposed to that, in all honesty, are not super beneficial for their learning. And I'm not talking about um, sort of the the scut grunt work i'm talking about upper level things you know we've discussed do our residents need to have a lot of experience managing patients on ecmo for example you know if they're going to go out in the world and manage patients on ecmo they're going to do a fellowship they're going to learn that then if they're not going to do that then is that something that's worth their time to really learn a complicated thing like that and i think that's something where if you have people who do it uh, all the time they can become experts at that um, and, and sort of let the residents focus on things that are going to be more beneficial to their long-term goals. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So what, and Ruth, you've done some research into this, so you can maybe talk to this. What are the role, I guess, so when I talk to people around the country and even around the world, day-to-day -day life for an advanced practice provider in the ICU looks pretty different depending on who you're talking to, what is the role mostly for the, for these providers? Are they practicing as independent providers or are they practicing something similar to a trainee physician, like a junior resident, a senior resident, a fellow, what level of sort of independence, I guess, uh, do you see most 
most providers taking on. Right. And, you know, there, there is great variation, but, you know, obviously they are by virtue of their education and training, you know, they are advanced practitioners. So they have a degree definitely of autonomy and independence, but certainly because of the critical nature of patients in the ICU, you know, they function as part of the team as well. Um, you know, I think uh, characteristically, um, many of the advanced practitioners work in the unit to help manage patients as part of the team. So they may have a certain number of patients, you know, under their care and rounding with the team and making the plan of care for the day and, you know, reporting out um, on their patients and, and seeking out consultation in terms of the management components. But you you do function as part of a team. I, you know, I think, and Brian, you can relate to this. We've had some controversy over the years in the United States about that word independence. And out of the 50 states in the United States, um, luckily, majority are moving to have full practice authority, which really just means that uh, the nurse practitioner can practice to the scope of their license. It doesn't mean that they're going to go out and practice independently and um, you know, not uh, not seek guidance from physicians. And in some primary care practices, you do have nurse practitioners who do have a clinic and maintain a panel of patients. They have a physician collaborator, but for the most part, they are seeing patients independently. I think we see it's different in acute and critical care because, you know, we need, we need the experts to, you know, help co-manage patients. And so it is definitely a team-based uh, role. Right. I think independence uh, is something that looks very different in the primary care world than in our world, right? I was We were just talking about this the other day at work. I said, realistically, I don't think there's ever going to be a, a hospital in the United States that will hire me as a nurse practitioner to be their sole ICU provider. So I, I'm not concerned with having independence so much as I am having uh, a respectful collaboration. And you mentioned that the full practice uh, in states. Kentucky is sort of a middle of the road state comparatively, but I think a lot of it varies institution to institution as well. I know people who practice in so-called full practice autonomy states in the ICU who actually have probably less autonomy and independence than I have uh, by virtue of the fact that I work for a, a group of physicians who trusts me and trusts nurse practitioners in general uh, and affords us quite a bit of independence. Yeah, and I think Jonathan, you mentioned this, um, you know, it really takes working with the physicians one-on-one -on -one for them to really realize the knowledge, education, and value that an advanced practitioner brings to practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for my medical colleagues. One of the reasons is that because um, we're going through a, a process over here in the UK at the moment where nursing associates are starting to be developed. Now, we uh, 20, 30 years ago had two levels of nursing. You would have uh, the state enrolled nurse who was trained for two years and the state registered nurse who was trained for three years. The state enrolled nurse couldn't take charge of the ward. Um, but that really was the only difference. Uh, they um, since all uh, merged into uh, one, so they all had to do a conversion course. Uh, that was thought to be a great idea. And now guess what's happening? We're going through that cycle all over again. So now we're getting nursing associates who will have similar roles to the state enrolled nurses. And some of my 
um, nursing colleagues at the moment are finding that a, a threatening thing. And, and I, I don't think there needs to be a threat. I think there needs to be a new way of working, a new way of looking at this. These are highly motivated individuals who, for one reason or another, haven't been able to go through the traditional way of um, accessing nursing. They're going via a different route. But ultimately, because of that motivation, because of that level of belief that we are showing in them, they will I'm sure, turn out to be very, very good nurses as a consequence. And I think the same applies to us as advanced practitioners and our medical colleagues. They look at us, they worry about us because um, we're um, seen as maybe uh, a threat in some ways or maybe some something that could compromise the patient's care. But once they work with us and once they realize that we are, are highly motivated, you know, we have master's degrees, we have doctorates. We're probably, as far as uh, in, in many academic ways, we're more qualified than some of our medical colleagues in that we've had to work hard as mature students as well. You know, I got my master's degree when I was 45 years old. Um, and it's not something that's easy to achieve when you've got twins, twin boys of, you know, five and six. So we are highly motivated. And as a consequence, I think once our medical colleagues work with us and see that and understand that we're not there to do things that we don't feel qualified for that we're not qualified for that we're not going to go beyond those boundaries because why would you once they see that and they understand that i think they very much appreciate why we're there and we do become a valuable part of the team and i'm sure that's the american um, way of working as well yes I, I would say definitely um and you know we have a pretty pretty much of a mix in terms of roles in acute and icu settings where some are unit-based where they work in a unit and manage patients and some that are what we call service-based. So they might work for cardiology or cardiac surgery or neurosurgery. And so, you know, in those roles, they may see patients in the clinic setting before surgical procedure, they'll manage, help to manage them, you know, in the hospital setting after surgery, and then, you know, see them for the continuum of care, help with their discharge planning, and then end up seeing them in clinic um, as part of a, you know, a post-surgical follow-up. So um, I think we're seeing a lot of unique roles, uh, you know, specialty roles, such as working on a rapid response team or an ICU outreach team, um, sepsis teams. I think we're seeing a lot more roles for advanced practice providers. It's not just that traditional, um, you know, ICU-based role. And, and that's a good thing to see that the role is expanding based on a patient care needs. Yeah. So I, I was going to say too, um, along the lines of those, the different roles and things, we have really seen a tremendous amount of growth at our hospital over the last couple of years in the use of APPs and various roles and services. And it, I have to say, one of the things that's really nice to have APP colleagues on different services, because I think it facilitates getting stuff done too. Um, you know, instead of having to look up and find out who the resident or physician on call for a service is, who I may or may not know, a lot of the APPs that I work with are colleagues we worked together as nurses, or we've worked in uh, APP groups together. Um, and so it becomes, it, you take a large, you know, I think we're a little over a thousand bed hospital. Uh, and boil it down to a group of people that you know very well. Uh, and I think it, it helps to, to get stuff done. Oh, definitely. Especially for things like, you know, palliative care consultation. You know, we have uh, our palliative care team is 
really, um, you know, full-fledged uh, team with, with many nurse practitioners. And that's, you know, I think they're, that's one example of how you can help facilitate care of the critically ill patient when you have practitioners in different services and such to be able to outreach and consult with them. It, it provides a level of consistency and expertise, doesn't it, that um, because of the way the, the medical profession trains is not always available. Um, so I think that's probably one of the most powerful things that we have, that we do become specialised, we do become consistent. Um, and once you become embedded within a team, you become known as the person to, to, to help if there is a specific problem that needs addressing. So um, that, that's certainly the case. J just, just to move the conversation along a little bit, um, Ruth, what we talk about geographical variations, and it's one of Brian's questions there. Um, from your experience, uh, and I know you've you've spoken uh, around the world about advanced practice, um, because I know that you uh, have you been or are you going to Manchester to uh, Verapen's conference? Yes, I have presented there uh, several times before, and I'm actually presenting this year there in, in Manchester. Excellent. It's a, sh it's a shame I'm not going this year. I think the one year I actually managed to attend, you didn't make it, unfortunately. So, um, But my point is, it, what what's happening around the world? Because we, we're, we're talking here about the US and we're talking about the UK. I know um, our colleagues down in Australia are not suffering from this problem at the moment. I think they have... They certainly have the added advantage of the climate down there. Um, there. There is a bit of a brain drain going on from the UK. I don't know whether that's happening in the US as well, but they don't seem to be needing the advanced practitioners at the minute. It, is that Are they a few steps behind us or do they just have a different system? No, I, I think we see, uh, you know, nurse practitioners in New Zealand as well as Australia in specialty settings. So like um, emergency room settings, um, settings like that. Um, you know, when you look, uh, each country obviously has different uh, takes on the role, if you will, uh, but majority of countries are developing, if, if not already have in practice, advanced practice roles for nursing. Um, it was interesting to see, I had the opportunity to consult uh, and teach uh, in Singapore, and they started their first nurse practitioner role for acute care. You know, many countries like the U.S. started it based on primary care needs, but they, because they have uh, really an adequate physician workforce um, that manages patients in all types of settings, they identified a need for advanced practitioners in Singapore within the hospital setting itself to have specialty roles, work with wound care, work with palliative care, heart failure patients, those types of things. So I think that's one of the, another unique aspect of the role is that um, you can formulate positions based on what is the majority of uh, patient care needs within an organization that there's just not one role that um, is enacted even within the United States, you know, it varies tremendously, even from setting to setting. If you have a community hospital where you don't have residents and fellows, um, you know, we have some of our graduates uh, working as nurse practitioners and, you know, really um, helping to, to lead management of patients in some of those community settings because they don't have all the number of consultants and registrars and, uh, you know, residents and fellows around. So I, I would say that even from setting to setting, the role um, does vary. And, you know, that that is can be challenging for people seeking different positions. But I think it's definitely advantageous because, again, the role can be 
modeled based on what the focus area of need is for patient care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say too, Jonathan, we, you and I have talked about this before. Um, You had said over in the UK, uh, practitioners were less common, say in London uh, than in smaller places, but we're becoming more and more common. And I think a similar, a similar pattern is seen here in the United States where traditionally APPs have been used more in places where there is a shortage of physicians uh, and places like you said, like in London uh, where everybody wants to work. And same thing with like what you're seeing in Australia, Uh, there's not as much of a need, but I think we're seeing more and more the addition and development of the APP role less as a response to a shortage of physicians and more as a response to recognition of the unique qualities that that role brings to care yeah that's exactly what i was about to say brian you're absolutely right i think i think the drivers are beginning to change now because they're realizing that um it's not just about filling gaps it's about developing a new way of working that seems to be working well right yeah definitely you know the comprehensive care nature of the role is just one that adds value to patient care and organizations are really realizing the return on investment, you know, it's not just billables that, you know, organizations are looking at in terms of impact of advanced practice providers. And, you know, Jonathan, I don't know how it is in, in, in with your settings, but, you know, even metrics such as patient satisfaction, patient and family satisfaction, you know, 10 years ago, it was nice if families were satisfied or patients were satisfied, but now fast forward, and that's actually a an outcome parameter that organizations are benchmarked on. So, you know, the studies have demonstrated that patients and families are, are more satisfied with care from teams that have advanced practitioners because they can spend that extra time reinforcing education and teaching and, you know, the plan of care. And so, you know, really looking at not only financial impact for an organization, but also how are the practitioners impacting quality metrics, safety metrics, you know, instituting new protocols, targeting, uh, you know, such things as decreasing infection or pressure ulcers with quality improvements. So really enhancing the quality of care. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly uh, are becoming, uh, well, we have been for some time kind of target driven and, and they are certainly one of the ones that um, are of importance. Um, and like you say, it's, it, you know, that the the patient satisfaction and the family satisfaction is probably one of the most important drivers from my point of view because they tell you what's important from their point of view and if it's important to them it should be important to us to a degree as well and and it helps formulate the direction of our care most definitely yeah i think that's a good way of looking at it too uh, if it's important to them it should be important to us uh let's sort of switch gears a little and talk about the some considerations for practice just in general, how do we make our practice environments for APPs better? Since this is still in a lot of places a new concept, there may be a lot of trial and error going on as to how do I incorporate an APP into my team or how we have a group of APPs, how do we make our work environment better? And I think the easy thing is to fall back and say, well, what do we do for physicians? But uh, it's not always the same, right, for us, uh, as, especially for physicians in training, especially when it comes to things like scheduling and work hours. Um, so h- how, do we, how do we sort of optimize our practices? I mean, from, from my point of view, 
the, the and, and I've kind of alluded to this already, but the quick way to do that is is to realise that actually we are the bridge between um, those two particular areas, and if we can encourage the advanced practitioner to be involved on both sides of that then i think you're going to um increase the amount of teamwork that's possible the development of the advanced practitioners as well as the development of those below and the development of those above if, if you want to use that terminology um so it, it for me it's about not letting the advanced practitioners forget their roots because that's where they came from and that's where advanced practitioners of the future will come from and they're also got a huge ability to um, allow those behind them to develop within their own sphere so nursing if that's where people want to stay and it's important that they do but it's also important that they feel um, able to um, develop themselves and develop their profession but also to be able to look forward and work with those in the medical profession to work out how we can be part of the future with them as well how can we help them develop with their learning needs because obviously you know in the past 10 20 years and the same in america that the amount of time that junior doctors can spend actually working clinically has been reduced dramatically um probably rightly so um but as a consequence it means that they uh, may be less experienced in some of the things that we need them to be experienced in and that's something that we as advanced practitioners can also be involved in so we can be very much the bridge between those two and i think advanced practitioners need to start playing a part in um developing that rather than i don't know what it's like in the states and hopefully i'm going to find out when i come over but at the moment we we are to a degree led by the way the medical profession wants us to go i would like us now to be more deterministic in the way that we go by um consulting both sides of that particular coin if you like yeah, and I, I think we've seen, you know, definite uh, beneficial changes when the roles first evolved. It was sort of like, well, you hire a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and they show up and, you know, they get their patients on the first day and they may get oriented to where the bathroom or the lockers are. And then you just sort of, you know, give them patient care assignments and they go on. But you know, now we've, in the past, I'd say five, eight years, we've really seen the importance of having specific training, onboarding, orientation sessions. Um, you know, obviously the practitioners have their educational um, training program, but their role may be so specific that they do need, you know, uh, guidance when they assume a new role, um, you know, providing resources. We have organizations now that have over several, several hundred advanced practitioners within their setting. And so now we have seen, which is something new as well, we have um, advanced practitioners serving in lead and administrative roles so that they're over a team or they're over um, the advanced practitioners within the organization and, and serve as in a leadership and administrative role and make sure that there are, you know, practice protocols in place that they can streamline the credentialing and privileging process, um, you know, that there is a mentorship uh, and, and adequate uh, uh, onboarding and orientation, because we've seen in some organizations that they have had uh, high turnover rates of advanced practitioners. If they bring them into a role 
but don't support the role for additional growth and development, including, you know, ongoing education and training and uh, support to attend national conferences or ultrasound courses or whatnot, because it really is a career. It's not just a job. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, what's your thought? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I I have a friend who told me a story. He applied uh, as a new graduate nurse practitioner. He was very interested in HIV, uh, and he applied to a university. They had an opening for a nurse practitioner in their HIV AIDS clinic, and he asked them, you know, what's the what's the sort of training onboarding procedure? Uh, and he was told, you know, here's your pager. You'll see a full complement of patients on day one with someone and on day two you're expected to be independent and he said you know this is a very complicated specialized field that i've received little training in school but i'm very interested in i'm willing to put in the time to work but you can't expect me to just jump into something like that with no training mm. uh, and i think that you're right ruth we sometimes do expect that um, we've started a fellowship program for nurse practitioners in critical care um, where i am in kentucky uh, which is a year of very structured. They do rotations in various ICUs and they do rotations with elective services. Um, and we have a, at least week, once a week lecture series uh, and, and including things like sim lab training and stuff um, that's all protected. Um, and it's not terribly different than what I got when I first started, uh, except it's more expanded and a little more protected. But, you know, when I started, I got six months of orientation. I got uh, books to read and lectures to attend. Uh, I had to pass tests throughout the six months, including um, oral exams with the physicians where they would put me through, you know, scenarios that were designed to make me sweat a little bit. Um, but at the end of it, I came out a much better practitioner that I think than I would have had I just been tossed into the deep end. And you know what, Brian, I can almost guarantee you loved it. I did love it. I, I mean, it was terrifying at times, but, uh, and I tell our new people, well, they, they say, you know, I've, I've oral boards today and what can you tell me? And I said, uh, it's pretty awful. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be terrified the whole time, but at the end of it, you're going to come out much, much better prepared because, you know, when you're here at two o'clock in the morning and a nurse calls you with that same problem, but it's for yeah. real this time, yeah. you're going to, you're going to know what to do and it's going to be second nature to you because we've drilled it to you. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of me to me sums up the, the, the people that want to be advanced practitioners. We don't sit comfortably in that comfort zone, do we? You know, we want to constantly be challenged and move forward. And uh, I think I, I'm always looking for new things to do. Um, and advanced practice to me when somebody said do you want to do this i i couldn't wait to do it because it meant that i could move forward and 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 challenge myself consistently and constantly so yeah most definitely so let's let's talk a little bit about staffing um we sort of hinted at this and um i think this is one of the things that sets us apart from at least in so my experiences as an app has been solely in an academic environment i've never worked in private practice I worked in private practice years ago as a nurse, as a bedside nurse, but, you know, in the residents, there are work hour restrictions on them now, but they still have fairly crazy schedules. Um, they still have long hours and lots of nights and holidays and stuff like that. And I think the temptation is to just say, to take the APP and throw them into the mix, into the same uh, rota with the residents or fellows. 
and I personally, I think that's a mistake, um, but I'll let people, I'll share my thoughts in a minute, but what do you guys think about schedules and workload and things like that? Well, you know, it, it's something that um, needs to really have flexibility to it. Um, and I think we've seen some national initiatives through our Critical Care Societies Collaborative here in the United States. They've actually been addressing uh, such things as work-life balance and uh, healthy work environments and looking at prevention of burnout and building resistance. And one of the things that comes out strongly in the literature is, you know, the need to have a work schedule that is conducive. Um, you know, it, it, when you start in some of these positions, obviously, yes, there is going to be, you know, high intensity type of demands to the role. But if you want someone to stay in, in their role and, and to further develop their career, it has to be something that's flexible, that they can have self-scheduling, that they don't have to take an, an enormous amount of, you know, night call or or whatnot, and I think you know organizations are realizing that they need to carve out what is really um, you know a a role that is such that it can promote safe patient care as well as be one that's conducive to lifestyles of individuals. Right, and that's so that's sort of one of the things I was alluding to when I said I think it's a mistake to just treat everyone the same. Um, and certainly I don't think that just because someone's a resident or a physician in training that they should be abused or worked, uh, excessively. But I also think that, like you said, if you want someone to stick around, this is my full-time life, right? That this is every day for me for the foreseeable future. This is not a one month, uh, and then I move on to something else. And so I think you're right to expect someone to come in and work lots of nights, lots of weekends, lots of what we would consider off hours that, that are less desirable uh, is a quick way to get someone to leave. And I think we all, we all get into critical care and we understand that it's a 24 seven job, right? Somebody has to be there at night. Somebody has to be there on the weekends. Uh, but I think you're right. Getting something that's fair and equitable. Um, and also I think customizable, right? Cause not everybody's the same. We have, a couple of nurse practitioners in our group who really enjoy working nights. Oh. Uh, they, they don't ever want to work days. Oh. So as a consequence, I almost never work a night and God bless them. I love them for that. <laughs> um, and, and we bend over backwards to try and keep them happy uh, because they're willing to do that because that's, that's their preference. Yeah, absolutely. We went through a phase a few years ago of uh, when I started nursing, we had nurses who did nights. They were considered to be the night nurses. They enjoyed doing the nights. It suited their work-life balance. You know, they had young children or whatever. Um, and then we went through this period whereby we decided that, no, you, you couldn't just work nights. You couldn't just work days. You had to do a combination of the two because it was considered better for the patients. Um I have never been a lover of nights. I'm like a, a, a bear with a very sore head when I come onto a night shift. So it's not my preference. And I'm very fortunate now. I'm in a job where I don't actually do any night shifts, which is just fabulous. Um, but I think that that work-life balance is, is very important. And I've seen just recently, Brian, I don't know whether you've seen this trail and whether it's a similar situation in the US. One of the complaints going on on Twitter at the moment is that um, my night off... Um, it, 
it it seems very unreasonable that I've I've got I finish work on a Monday morning, um, and then I'm expected to come back on a day shift on the Tuesday, and that's considered to be a 24 hour shift off. So it's things like that that um, people struggle with, um, and I think we have to find the balance because it's still very true that the uh, rate of suicide within the medical profession, I, I suspect, also within the nursing profession, is perhaps higher than the national average, and that work life balance is probably one of the things that we need to get hold of um, as a consequence but how you address that I think you work hard within your team to try and get the balance that people are happy with um, and there's always going to have to be some compromise isn't there Ruth is is night something that you took great delight in or did you hate them as much as I did uh, well actually I used to work nights uh, uh, for a stint um, you know and, and you really never <laughs> You never really adjust, even when you're, you know, you have your your days off. But um, it's the same as as what Brian had shared. You know, we have clinicians who just want to work that weekend hours or night shift hours, and you know, I think that's another one of the benefit of the flexibility of the roles is that you have people who want to work different um, work hours, and and you know, that's really how it should be. You know, you shouldn't have to force someone to, you know cover off shifts if really it's going to be detrimental to their own health as well as the safety of patients. So I think we're doing a better job than we had done uh, when the role first evolved um, and looking at flexibility in the work and as well as the scheduling. Okay, I think um, Ruth, if you don't mind, Brian, if we can just move towards some of the, the the latter questions, really, I think Ruth, probably one of the things that we want to pick your brains most about, because I, I think from an international perspective, you have a a bigger grip on this than than either I or Brian do. What's what's going to happen in the future? Do you think with um, advanced practice, um, is it, it it's it's definitely here to stay? I don't think there's any any worry about that, but. Where's it going? Where do you think people see it going and, and, and what's happening to make it go there, do you think? Well, you know, definitely looking at improving costs of care, uh, having a uh, patient experience that um, patients are not only just satisfied with their care, but also their care has been optimized, their knowledge level has been optimized, they're going to, um, you know, retain uh, information about their plan of care all of those factors really highlights that the role is here to stay and certainly will be expanding. There's roles that don't exist currently that we don't know what will be in the next five years, but you know, certainly organizations are looking at the benefit of the advanced practice role. And you know, compared to physician salary, they are cost-effective um, and do promote better outcomes. And so I, I think we're going to just really see it continue to expand and be accepted in, in many different ways. So what are the biggest challenges you think facing us as a profession as we move forward? Well, I think certainly we still have uh, to confront uh, individuals and organizations that don't realize what the role is, you know, what, what the role, uncertainty about the role. I think it's still pervasive, even though we've had the role in existence for quite some time. Do you think one of the problems where Ruth is all the different titles we give ourselves? Well, that's been cited in the literature, but I think, you know, just uh, administrators, physicians and others not really realizing the value of the role um, or utilizing it to its full potential. You know, some clinicians will say they were hired and it just appears like their role is just a step up from a senior nurse position 
rather than a true advanced practice role. So I think ensuring that um, as roles are developed, that they are uh, consistent with what we consider advanced practice to be and that they're supported, um, you know, that advanced practitioners are given a level of independence to, um, you know, uh, manage patients without undue restrictions, such things as having to have a written collaborative agreement or, you know, some states have other restrictions such as that, that really impede the ability of the clinician to um, fulfill their roles. So I, I think that is a challenge that we need to continue to address. And that's internationally as well. It's not just US-based. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one of the things that we're experiencing over here. But like I've said, um, once once we make it clear what we can do and work with the right people, then I think we are moving forward. And, and the growth over here is certainly starting to become an exponential one. Um, you know, there's many, many, many more of us now than there were when I started back in 2011. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think this has been a great conversation. Um, I think we've got a lot of challenges as a profession ahead, but I think we provide uh, a great service not only to patients but to um, the organizations we work with and for. Um, one thing we didn't even talk too much about was cost. Um, I think there's literature that supports that advanced practice providers um, help contain medical costs. We certainly um, are, are more cost effective uh, in a lot of ways than hiring additional physicians, at least in the United States. So thanks very much for joining us today, Ruth. Great. My pleasure. And Ruth, um, are, how many days are you there for at the NTI? I'll probably be there for uh, three, two or three. So we should touch base to see when you're there. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, I'm hoping I'm going to be there for for, for all of the days, but um, I've got to work out the logistics of it. And uh, Brian and and a few others are going to talk about this on Monday. So uh, you will be a top target. Um, I'm planning on wearing a very loud, unpleasant Union Jack T-shirt so that um, everybody will recognize me and know who I am. So if you see me before I see you, please come and say hello and uh, just realize that you do run the risk of having a microphone shoved under your nose at the same time. Great. I will do that. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, sure. This has All been right. brilliant. Nice Thank nice you. to meet you, Ruth, and I'll see you soon. Okay. Very good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye. Well, thanks, Ruth, and thanks, Brian. That was a very interesting discussion. I think there's going to be lots of things happening for practitioners around the world, as you could probably hear there. Um, I'm just coming on briefly here just to uh, tell you a couple of things. First and foremost, my website has been down for uh, a few days about a week ago, I suddenly noticed, well, actually, Brian let me know that the website was down. Not absolutely sure why. It all got a bit complicated, things like databases and stuff, none of which I know very much about. The good news, it's back up. The bad news is that I seem to have lost all my traffic. I don't know why, but nobody is visiting it. I'm going from a 1,000 hits a day to five hits per day, so I'm not quite sure what the glitch is there. The company I've um, uh, paid to... Uh, try and solve this problem uh, say that they can't see where the issue is either so I'm hoping the traffic will pick up but if you are one of the people who visits the site then please go back and visit it it's got a brand new look it looks very different now I spent a couple of months redesigning it all trying to smarten it up trying to bring it a bit up to date making it more easily navigable and hopefully more useful to anyone that wanted to use it
The other thing that's happening is that um, it's not far now from when I will be going to the um, American Association of Critical Care Nurses Conference in Orlando. That's in May. Very excited about that. So I'm hoping that myself and Brian and a few other colleagues, um, we've got John and um, oh, John and Anna Rodriguez um, also going to be joining me. Um, hopefully we'll be interviewing lots of people. Um, I've got Mike von Schudi who's uh, got me over there. If I haven't pronounced that, Mike, I do apologise. Um so really, really looking forward to that. Obviously, a trip to Orlando um, is a bit special. And to meet all these people at this huge conference is going to be absolutely fabulous. So that's that's on the cards as well. So sometime after May, we can uh, produce quite a few. And I'm hoping to be live streaming from there as well. So there's going to be some live streaming via Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. So looking forward to that. So I won't keep you any longer. Just to say that um, I do still have a Patreon account as well. I am gradually building up more and more Patreons if you wanted to help pay for some of the costs that I incur, um, namely at the moment, getting someone to sort the website out for me. Um, but if you want to uh, help contribute as little as a uh, dollar per episode, then that would also be fabulous. So um, you just go to uh, my Patreon account. Uh, if you find Patreon, it's under Critical Care Practitioner. Anyway, that's enough of the begging bowl. Thanks for listening again. And hopefully we will uh, be talking again soon. Bye bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>